So here are some things that I uh, initially thought were coincidences, but uh, over time realized they were not so coincidental. Uh, my goldfish growing up looked a little bit different each time that I asked somebody to come over and take care of it while I went away on a trip for sports. And when I came home, again, it looked a little different, and I didn't quite understand why. Um, my second grade teacher, um, when I was in second grade doing spelling tests, I was doing one particular spelling test, and I was writing out the words, you know, trying to do the test. And at the same time, I'm actually trying to finish my spelling book on my lap and trying to write the exact same words that are on the spelling test in my book. And my teacher got upset, and I just quite, didn't quite initially understand why she got upset with that. I'm you know, supposed to be doing these spelling words for memory, but yet I'm also looking at my book not realizing there's a connection there, right? Um, also, uh, maybe a, a coincidence that I didn't realize again at the time, uh, my single parent mother uh, met and married a man who lived two houses down from a church when church was not anywhere on the radar of my family growing up. And there's these kind of things that happen in our lives that we, we don't necessarily always initially see that they're connected or they might be connected, but maybe looking back on them or maybe with some distance or some time or, or maybe just the impact of whatever the event is, it sort of shows us that maybe there was a little bit something more to that, um, which might lead us to a little bit of a strange, uh, you know, feeling like this series is a little bit of an oxymoron. How can there be these divine coincidences? These coincidences, which the definition, if you don't know, is a remarkable set of events or circumstances happening or existing at the same time without apparent orchestration. And the key word there is apparent, because a lot of times we can't see that initially. We don't necessarily know it or don't understand it. Uh, maybe we just don't have the perspective to see that sort of uh, coordination or orchestration of events. And so we're starting this series called Divine Coincidence. And like I said, we're actually looking at the book of Esther as sort of a, a really big picture. The, the whole story in some ways is this interesting combination of divine and, and coincidence. What seems like a lot of coincidence and what seems to maybe have some divinity. But interestingly, you may not know this, there's actually a book in the Bible, and this is the book of the Bible that doesn't actually name God in it. There, there's no mention of God in this book, which again, it sort of seems a little bit strange that the Bible is supposedly God's word, and yet it doesn't actually mention God directly. And so we're going to kind of explore that and what that actually might mean. And, and I think one of the reasons that, um, that maybe God sort of allowed the book to not have his name in it, or the author didn't put his name in it directly, is for us to understand that God is at work even when we don't see him. And even if he's not even named, even if the people involved in the situation don't acknowledge that God is working through them or acknowledging that God is working in them, there's still a sense in which God is still working in those situations. And when we understand that, it really can change how we live our lives and the decisions that we make and how we treat other people. And so in the book of Esther, though, again, God is not mentioned directly by name, he is present, as I hope you'll see through this series. He's, he's moving, he's active, he's working in each of the chapters that we're going to read. And, and I think that a lot of people would say this is a, a pretty brilliant technique by the author. Again, this is, this is thousands of years ago when the author wrote this. And it's this brilliant technique uh, that, that um, we don't know the author, by the way, but this, is, this technique um, is described by the Bible Project as an invitation to look for God's activity. The, the absence of God being named in the book, it sort of gives us this opportunity, this invitation to look for where could God be 
in this story and in the activity of the story. And I think there's signs of it everywhere. We're going to point out some of them along the way as we read this story. But it's full of, again, these sort of these odd, uh, maybe strange coincidences or happenstances, these uh, ironic reversals at times uh, in which God can lead us to sing, or which those things can lead us to sing that God is working through this chapter and, and through these books, uh, through this book that we're reading for his purposes. And he's working behind the scenes. A lot of times that's the way God typically works. And, and in our more modern world, it seems like one of the only ways that God works is sort of behind the scenes. We don't necessarily see him the same way that maybe other people have. And this is relevant to all of our lives because at one point or another, uh, maybe it's maybe even your whole life, you sort of feel like maybe God is, is not active or present or he's not necessarily visible or he's, you're sort of wondering if he's even there. So what do we do in those times when we can't locate God? When we can't locate his activity, we're not exactly sure where he is, and we're not exactly sure what he's actually doing. What do we do in those times? Because again, all of us at some point are going to have those times in our lives where we just aren't sure that we can locate God's activity. And this leads us to an important theological doctrine that, to be honest, I don't think I've ever talked about um, actually naming it. It's obviously sort of throughout um, a lot of preaching and, and through the Bible, but this doctrine is called providence, the idea of God's providence in our lives and in the world. Um, H. Orton Wiley uh, says this. He describes providence as the activity of the triune God, basically the God of three persons, the Holy Spirit, Father, and Son. Um, the, God, the activity of the triune God by which he conserves, cares for, and governs the world which he has made. Dr. Tony Evans describes providence this way. He says, God's providence is the miraculous and often mysterious way he intersects and interconnects people and events to bring about his sovereign will and purposes. What he wants to happen, basically, is what he's saying. And then this last part's really important, I think. God's unseen hand at work. That's kind of what providence is. It's God sort of working behind the scenes, his, his unseen hand working in our lives and in the lives of other people. And the interesting thing about this idea that God is working behind the scenes is, is again, that sort of that interconnecting, that intersecting, that somehow God can, can intersect our lives in a way that we wouldn't necessarily see or imagine or even know is actually happening when it's actually happening. Uh, one of the instances of this, it's obviously throughout Esther as we're going to look at, but there's an instance and several other instances in the Bible where it talks about this. One is from Psalm 33. We'll read this here. Uh, Psalm 33, verse 10. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. And yet, somehow, and, and this is a little bit tricky because I don't know how to exactly describe this, and somehow, along with God's sovereignty and his providence, we also have free will. And it sort of works not necessarily at, uh, either or, but both and, that there's a sense in which we have freedom within God's sovereignty and within his promise, his providence. That God knows what we will freely choose. He's this omnipotent, uh, or omniscient, rather, all-knowing God. And he knows what we're going to choose. And yet, also, he can sort of work that into a plan and a will that, that is working out throughout those things. He can orchestrate circumstances and events and situations in our lives, knowing what we're going to choose, knowing what's going to happen, and sort of work behind the scenes in those other areas as well. Uh, he can cause things to happen in our lives. But also, he can allow things to happen in our lives. And it all is towards the goal of reaching his ultimate plan, which is redeeming his people and his world, which is, again, we're going to see a microcosm of that in Esther, but we see that all throughout the world and through our lives as well. 
Um, and so this invitation to look for God's activity, it can help you and I as we sort of look at uh, our lives in general, right? An opportunity to look for the activity of God because uh, let's be honest, there's been seasons recently where we sort of don't know where God is leading us and what God is doing and is God actually present and active in our world. And in America, it seems like we're maybe moving away from God because of our own mistakes a lot of times, but we're sort of moving away from God and it's like, well, where is God actually working? Uh, church attendance is declining. Churches are, are dying and shrinking. And, and it just sort of wonders, well, where is God's activity in the world? And this invitation to look for God's activity is, is great for the story of Esther as we sort of look at that as a case study even, but in our own lives to look for God's activity in our world as well. Again, Tony Evans says this. He says, you can be conscious of God's fingerprints even when he seems absent. Because of this, we can trust God even when we cannot trace his hands at work in our lives. Because at one point or another, again, we're going to face a season, a circumstance, a situation uh, that's just sort of falling apart and it seems like God might be absent. And while we're not in those moments, we might know that, you know, God is everywhere. God is with us. God is present. But it's completely different when you're actually in those moments where you feel like God is not there and things are falling apart and the situation around you is crumbling to still look for God's fingerprints in those situations and have confidence that God is there even if we can't see him. And as we've said before, I think this is a powerful line to remember that God's silence does not necessarily equate to God's absence. And there's been periods through the scriptures where God seemed to be silent, but it did not mean that God was absent. And so we're going to be spending this next month or so, next few weeks, looking at the book of Esther, um, this book that, again, doesn't mention God by name, but we're going to look for God's activity throughout the book. Um, so a few quick notes about Esther before we jump in. Number one, um, I, I, we've mentioned this before, but um, there's a lot of great videos and resources through the Bible Project. And um, specifically with this book, they actually um, did an overview video of the whole book and helps you get a big picture view of the book of Esther that um, I think is really helpful. And it was actually helpful in me sort of preparing this as well. They also have this really cool poster that they sort of lay out the outline of the, the book, but it's not words so much as it is images. For those of you that are very visual, um, it's, it's a super helpful poster for that. And if you want to find any of that, you can also go to our website, nlnc.org hub, and there's a little link there you can click to go to the Bible Project to find that video, but also to find the poster, which is just right underneath the video on the right side. It says poster. You can click that and find that. But here's what the poster looks like. I know it's kind of hard to see, so you might need to download it. I get that. But this poster sort of helps us in the second part, the second note about this book, uh, to see the ironic reversals in the book of Esther. Um, as you sort of look at that poster, sorry, Kevin, if you can go back to that real quick, um, you sort of see the two sides of the poster there. Um, and on the left side, you'll see that there's, there's things happening that are then mirrored and the reversal happens on the right side later on in the book. It's almost exactly uh, reversing those situations. So here's a quick overview. Just again, a quick overview. We're going to hit some of these things in our messages, but a quick overview. Uh, the king, who is one of the main characters in this story, the first part of the, the uh, book talks about the king's splendor, the feast that he has, and some decrees that he issues for his people. And that's mirrored later on by Mordecai, this other character who's sort of elevated in status, some of the splendor of him and it's the feast that they have to honor him. And some of the decrees are meant about him. Uh, then there's Esther and Mordecai initially sort of save the king, but then as we're going to see uh, a little bit later, they actually not just save the king, but eventually they save the whole uh, people of, of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people. 
then there's a, later on, there's a villain named Haman that we're going to find out a little bit later. Uh, he has sort of a rise to power. He has some edicts about him that he sort of gets some laws passed and some things done. Um, there's a banquet to sort of honor him and where he's a part of it. But that all eventually gets reversed um, by another character. Again, Mordecai, one of the, the sort of the heroes of the story, his elevation and his edict and his banquet. And then the center part, that center part of the, the, the sort of the U shape, the center part you have Esther and Mordecai planning to how to get out of these problems that, that are going to be caused by Haman, how to, how to get out of these situations that are happening that just, again, don't necessarily seem good at all. They're very bad for them and their people. And then finally, you have these two banquets that sort of act as a frame around the, the great reversal of the story, the sort of the, the big change in the story uh, of uh, Haman being humiliated and Mordecai being exalted. And as we're going to see at the end of the story, this story, this story itself was actually told as a part of a festival, a banquet that the Israelite people would have following this story to celebrate this story. And so as people are hearing this story, they're celebrating themselves. They, these generations upon generations would hear this story as they're celebrating a feast, and they get an opportunity in an interesting way to participate in some of these feasts, these, these uh, events that are happening, and, and not only just hear it and watch it or whatever, they're actually joining in and seeing it as well. And they would ask this question that, again, was going to be sort of a framework, a little bit of a framework for our time. For what momentous purpose may God have brought me to this place in my life? And that's a question that we can all ask as well. That we can look at, look at our situations and look at what's going on and say, for what momentous purpose may God have brought me to this place in my life. Okay, so first note is some resources. Second note is ironic reversals in this book. And then third note is, is a pretty important one that um, is a little bit difficult for me to talk about, but it's moral ambiguity. <laughs> I don't like moral ambiguity. I don't know about you, but I like things very black and white and cut and dry and very easy. But this book is not that. Um, it is actually very much uh, ambiguous. It's, it's morally ambiguous as well. Uh, not only is God not mentioned, but there are some things that happen in this book that are not necessarily rated G. There's some things happening in this book that we don't probably get the full weight of um, because we live in a more modern, civilized society that doesn't do some of these things. But this book has some very interesting things happening. And one of the fascinating features about that about this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. That the characters are not cut and dry, good and bad necessarily. There's some good that is participating or involved in some bad things. And, and I probably can't emphasize this enough. Um, while these are interesting stories for an audience, right? We're not participating in these stories. For the characters that are actually involved, the moral ambiguity leads to some very painful Encounters, And I don't think we can rush past that because some of the things that we're going to talk about today uh, involve power struggles and, and gender dynamics and things that are just, uh, we just probably don't get the full weight of because, again, we're just reading this story. We're just an audience. But for these characters, having that moral ambiguity of these things that are, like, difficult to manage and, and navigate, they caused some very painful experiences. They, they were created some very painful experiences for the characters. Uh, there's a lot of drinking. There's some anger. There's sex. There's murder. And Mordecai and Esther, sort of the, the heroes of the story, are involved in that in some way. And, and this is beyond many of their, uh, beyond that, sorry, rather. It, this is also violating much of the, the Torah, the, the God's law that he'd given the Jewish people. Uh, that included uh, marrying non-Jewish people. That also included eating un, unclean or impure foods. And, and the story of the book of Esther is not endorsing all that Esther and Mordecai do. And so just to be very clear about it, it's not necessarily endorsing the way that they go about things. They're not necessarily moral examples. However, they are models of trust and of hope, of sort of making decisions leading to something bigger than just their own lives. 
And the story of Esther invites us to see that God is working in the real-life messes, right? We live in the real world. We live in a messy world that, that is very broken. And the moral ambiguity of the humans throughout our history leads to some problems, and it leads to some painful encounters for us, and also we cause some painful encounters for others. And this book invites us to trust God's providence, again, even when we can't see God's hand necessarily working directly or visibly. Uh, as we've already said, the book of Esther is, is, again, one of the more curious books of the Bible, one of the more curious books that we'll read, um, not just for not mentioning God, but also for some of the excitement. The storyline is pretty interesting. Um, the story takes place about 100 years after the Israelites were exiled from their land to the Babylonian land, to the, emperor, the, the Babylonian Empire in about 480 B.C. Uh, Babylon is defeated, and so these, these Jewish people were allowed to go back to their homes, some of them, but some of them did not. Uh, some of the people who did, you might know the names Ezra and Nehemiah, those were people that went back, but many of the Jewish people did not go back, and so they sto- sort of stayed with this new empire that was forming in Persia. And, and this book is about uh, the Jewish community that was living in the Persian Empire in the capital city of Susa. And Susa, kind of interestingly, just to sort of put some geography to it, is in modern-day Iran near the southern border with Iraq. That's where this is basically taking place. And the central thrust of the story is a serious threat to the Jewish community. Again, I sort of referenced it with the outline there. There's basically this group, the, the, the Persians, and one of the Persian leaders wants to kill all the Jewish people. And so there's a serious threat to all the Jewish people. And so that's sort of the, seri- the central thrust of it. How do they deal with that? How do... How do um, uh, uh, Esther and um, uh, Mordecai deal with that situation. Uh, and as we already referred to, Esther and Mordecai are the main characters. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther, but Esther's uh, parents die, and so she's sort of adopted by Mordecai and taken care of by Mordecai. There's also the king of Persia, which is a historical character that we know about. You've probably read about Xerxes. And to be honest, he's just sort of the male chauvinist pig when he's drunk. And he's not quite as bad when he's not drunk, which maybe sounds familiar to some of the guys that some of us know. That's just sort of the way it is. Um, plus, again, the villain that we're going to meet. We're not going to meet him this week, but we'll meet him next week. So we're going to start in Esther chapter 1 if you want to follow along the Bible app. You're welcome to do that. You're also welcome to join us online um, in the notes section there of Church Online as well. So Esther, uh, beginning in verse es- Esther chapter 1, uh, just remember, King Xerxes is the leader of the Persian Empire, um, and he's got this vast wealth, he's got this vast empire, about 127 provinces, uh, basically stretching from India to Ethiopia, all throughout the Middle East. He's got this huge empire that he's overseeing. So he's starting off, this story starts off with three feasts that he's going to have. Um, two of them are sort of to elaborate, uh, to sort of elaborate how wealthy and amazing King Xerxes is, Okay. Here we go, starting on verse 4. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and, circum- or pomp and splendor rather, of his majesty. That's sort of why Xerxes has these big parties, this big festival, to display his own uh, wealth and um, his empire. At the same time, Queen Vashti, which was his, his wife, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And so the author wants to sort of start off by setting the stage and saying Xerxes is this powerful, um, powerful king who has all this wealth, all this land, all this influence, and this immense power and greatness. He's got all this stuff. He's throwing this big party to sort of um, show all that off. Again, going from India to Africa to Asia Minor, all that area is basically his to, to take over. And he's not a noble character, as is sort of already referenced. Um, But he is a very proud king. He wants to sort of show off in front of people. And so, again, that's why he has this party. Uh, Verse 10. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, a.k.a. he was drunk, he told told the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him and the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to 
Now, what do you think he wanted the other men to do? <laughs> like, what do you think they were wanting to do by bringing the queen? What were they trying to do? Were they, like, wanting to show off her brains and have her, you know, solve some math problems? Or were they wanting to, like, show off her personality or how she could lead a discussion about world affairs? No, of course not. Unfortunately, that's not at all what it was. Uh, verse 11, he wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. He basically just wanted to objectify her, right? <laughs> Make her into an object that was another possession of his that he could show off for everybody to see. He had already shown off all his possessions and his wealth with all the food and, and the party and the festival. And now he wants to bring out his wife to sort of objectify her and to show her off as one of his possessions. Well, verse 12, but when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious and he burned with anger. That the queen says no, she doesn't want to parade herself around in front of a bunch of, uh, a party rather, of a bunch of uh, intoxicated men. Why would she want to do that? Of course not. Why would she want to do that? Well, she says no. She just says, I'm not going to do that. She doesn't come. And so again, this sets the king off and he's just furious. He's angry with her. Everybody's supposed to listen to the king and let alone his own wife won't listen to him. And this powerful, powerful man, we sort of see this very from the very beginning, this powerful, powerful man can't figure out how to have an actual relationship with his wife. <laughs> One of the ironies of the world. He's, he's got this vast empire of all these peoples and, and all these provinces that he's over in control of. And yet he doesn't seem to be able to control his wife. And I use that term very loosely because he shouldn't be controlling his wife, right? But it seems like that's sort of his goal and he realizes he can't do that. So he consults with his advisors. What should he do? He, he gets some help. He, he can't, again, figure it out on his own. So he has to go and seek out help from other people. And again, he isn't concerned with her. Unfortunately, he's just, she's just sort of an object to him. He's not concerned with other people. He's not concerned with justice. He wants to find out how he can get back at her and how he can do something to her and, and sort of appear to still be in control of the situations. Well, one of his advisors says this in verse 16, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. That these advisors basically tell the king that he could issue this decree that Vashti should never come into the presence of the king again, and that they tell the king that he should start to find another queen. He should, he should start to look for another queen. And so he actually does that, um, but he also does something else. He sort of sends out this edict, this, this decree to people um, in his empire. Verse 22, he sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say... Whatever he pleases, which, uh, wow, wow. Um, so all the young men online, in the room, let me just be very clear. This is a terrible and ineffective way to influence anyone, especially your wife. Just not a good idea. Like, just no, no qualms about it. Just not a good idea. And as one of the maybe more possible, uh, one of the possible uh, ironies and reversals of this story, we know that after Xerxes, this king, after he dies, Artaxerxes, his son, takes over. And Artaxerxes is possibly, we don't know for sure, he's possibly the son of Queen Vashti. And that's sort of the connection. And Artaxerxes, we know, his mother was very influential in his kingdom when he was the king. And so possibly, in a, an interesting twist or reversal, uh, King Xerxes sends out Vashti and like, says, you should control your wife and control your women, all that stuff. And it, eventually, maybe she comes back and has some influence in the kingdom right after his, in the reign right after his. So kind of that interesting source. But we see uh, Xerxes is, again, is this impulsive, brash person. He's often irrational. 
and, and, he, and he sort of has a lot of power in some ways, but again, in other ways, he just doesn't have power. He doesn't have control as much as he thinks he does. But basically, uh, the, the, the source Bible says this, he's consumed with his own image and unconcerned with the fate of others, even his own queen, which again, in our modern world, we just think that doesn't make any sense. That's just, that's just strange. So it seems for about three or four years, uh, Xerxes at least is sort of uh, displaced from this. He's sort of removed from this situation. Um, but he also has a little bit of a sense of regret. And it's likely, for those of you in history, sort of involved in, interested in history, this is likely the time when Xerxes goes and makes this campaign to sort of try to take over Greece. And he has these battles um, between the Persians and the, Greece, or the Greeks. And so that's sort of when this has happened. But verse uh, chapter one, chapter two, verse one. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So again, he sort of has this little bit of a sense of regret, or at least this this emptiness in his life, whatever that might be. Um, whether that's healthy or not, it's another discussion. But he has this sense of regret a little bit. Um, but unfortunately, he sort of does what most of us do when we have regret. He sort of represses it and pushes it away and just sort of suppresses it. Um, his advisors also enable him to continue to do that. And they just say, oh, yeah, you should just go find your next queen. You should just find this, uh, you know, the next woman to take her spot of, of Queen Vashti. And so the king takes this advice from his attendants who are either young and inexperienced or old and just unwise because the number one trait that they tell him to look for is beauty, which not anything bad against beauty, but that was not the problem with his first relationship. That was not the reason the first relationship didn't work. So maybe that's not the thing that you should focus on, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. So the queen, or the king rather, holds a, a Miss Medes and Persians beauty contest, basically, to sort of find this most beautiful girl that can become his new queen, his new wife, um, and ultimately become like a trophy wife, basically, for him. Now, um, it might be hard for you to believe, but there was once a culture, this is really strange, once a culture where older men would try to impress younger women and try to attract younger women who are beautiful with their money and power to try to get them to become their wife. Like, I know this is crazy, but this happened. Like, once time, one upon time, this is a culture thing, right? And I think it still, unfortunately, happens today, right? Um, but one of the contestants in this beauty contest was a Jewish girl named Esther, which is the main character, obviously, of the story. Um, she was an orphan. She was raised and adopted by her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai becomes sort of a father figure in her life. And the author records, though, that she was very beautiful and lovely, and so she becomes a finalist to go before the king. Now, again, I don't want to overlook this, and I don't know if I can completely um, elaborate on this uh, myself. Um, but as we said at the start, there's some moral ambiguity to this story. And this is where it sort of starts to get even more sticky and a little bit un uncertain and ambiguous. So what, what's actually going on here? And it also includes, again, Mordecai and Esther being central in those decisions that were being made that are a little bit uncertain and we don't exactly know how to handle them. And while, again, there's some interesting stories for us as an audience, there's an interesting um, reading here, this leads to some painful encounters and likely starts some painful encounters for Esther in this moment. Because likely she didn't have a choice. She wasn't like saying, oh yeah, I can go choose to become part of this beauty contest. No, she was probably thrown into this beauty contest, uh, maybe against her own will. Maybe, maybe she was interested, we don't necessarily know, but, but likely she wasn't really given a choice in the matter in these times. And um, while we know in our world today that we're sort of you know, against human trafficking, against sex trafficking, against you know, sort of prearranged marriages, we sort of look down on that generally in our culture. We just say that's like not a good thing, like women should have equal rights and they have, should have a choice in the decision and they should be a part of that. Um, the reason that we believe that is because we're on the other side of Jesus, that Jesus gave dignity and value to women in a way that was not seen in the world before him. 
And we live on the other side of that. And so it's a little bit easy for us to look at this story and say, yeah, this is like not necessarily ideal at all. But we have to remember that we're on the other side of Jesus. And Jesus is the reason that we have this sense of value and dignity for women in our world. And so, uh, again, as Esther enters this contest, she becomes a finalist. Um, and, and yet, throughout this thing, there seems to be some sort of divine consequence, uh, a coincidence, rather, of, of Esther being entered into this pageant. And, and eventually, she becomes this uh, important, prominent role. Um, continue on, verse 9. Haggai was very impressed. Uh, with, Haggai was one of the supervisors of these, these women who entered the contest. He was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem, which is kind of an interesting uh, parallel or comparison to uh, Daniel. We know the story of Daniel, and Daniel was shipped off to this other empire and was, you know, put in this situation of prominence, and and all of a sudden he gained favor with those who were supervising him. And in the same sort of way, it seems that Esther somehow has favor with the supervisor over her. Uh, Verse 10, Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. So he doesn't just leave her. He sort of finds this way to go and find out what's going on. And interestingly, again, sort of comparing the story of Daniel, Esther and Mordecai do not just publicly and openly share their Jewish faith. They sort of keep it a little bit of a secret. And yet Daniel was somebody who was very bold in sharing his faith and was not going to let anything get in the way of his Jewish faith. And yet there's two different approaches And both of them enter the Bible. Both of them are a part of the story of the scriptures of God redeeming the world through those decisions. And Esther and Mordecai choose not to tell anyone, which again, it adds this layer of complexity, this sort of moral ambiguity about how we go about making decisions. Verse uh, 12, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes, and ointments. Verse 17. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. And again, this section continues to highlight and further illustrate the, the moral ambiguity of this, of this story, uh, along with, again, the differences of power dynamics. Again, Daniel and, and Esther are not completely comparable because Daniel was a man. And, and in those time periods, that's very different from being a woman. And there's these differences in power dynamics, so they're not completely equal. But we, we have these stories of Daniel and, and also Joseph, who, who would be into these other foreign governments in these significant positions of power. And the decisions that they made, in some ways, were different than decisions that Esther made. And Esther might not have choices to make any different decisions, but there are differences. There's this, this again, this ambiguity between the two. Uh, not only that, but again, according to this, this passage, it seems that, that uh, Esther... She sleeps with a man that she's not married to, and she also is married to a man who's not a Jewish person. She gets married into this situation, this situation that's against what the Jewish law would be. But again, there are very different power dynamics, so I'm not necessarily making a judgment on that. I'm just sort of highlighting that and emphasizing that there can be differences. Um, The story of of Esther, though, I think, again, it sort of highlights the brokenness in our world around us, that for many women, the brokenness in our world leads them to not be able to make decisions or have a choice in addressing the decision that's confronting them. And even if Esther willingly chose to enter into this situation, a, a, the sort of morally compromised decision, or whether she was forced to do things that she knows she was wrong, 
The point is that God is still gracious enough and omnipotent enough. He's all-powerful enough that he can still redeem his people through that situation. So it doesn't really matter whether Esther chose to make these necessarily decisions that didn't follow the Jewish law or whether she was forced into it. Either way, God's power is big enough that he can work through either situation to redeem his people and to bring about change. And so continuing on, uh, this strange process, again, Esther becomes queen. We're going to wrap up this last little section, um, which doesn't necessarily end the story. It just sort of starts this, this it sets the stage, rather, for the story of what Esther is going to be a part of. And continues on with the end of chapter 12, and, or chapter 2, rather, and sets the stage for what we're going to talk about next week. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, uh, Bigthanon and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign, which will come in as an important detail a little bit later. But the sort of the end of these first two chapters uh, of the story of Esther, the book of Esther, God is not mentioned. We didn't mention God at all in the, in the actual reading of the st- story of Esther, which again, it leads us to sort of answering that beginning question that we talked about. Why is God not mentioned? What is the reason that God is left out of this book as being named? And where is God in this story? I would propose to you, and I hope you'll see that throughout the story, and maybe you can also point to instances in your own life, that God is working and he is present. He's working behind the scenes. Even though he never explicitly gets named in this book, he is working. Because how is it, right? Let's just ask a few questions. How is it that of all the women in the Persian Empire, which remember, stretches from Ethiopia to India and Asia Minor and all that area, of all the women in the, in the Persian Empire, how is it that an exiled, orphaned Jewish girl eventually rises to become the queen of Persia? How is it that of all the people, again, in the Persian Empire, the vast empire that we just talked about, how, how important and how prominent the, the, the king was, how is it that in all this huge empire that Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, is the one who saves the king from an assassination plot? How is it that all of this could sort of happen, these specific details, how could they all happen? Because I think one of the messages of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are exiled or still in exile and and suffering from from being in exile, when they were even unfaithful, even if they're unfaithful on purpose or sort of just forced to, they're unfaithful to God's law, uh, whether they have a choice or not, they're unfaithful to God's law. Even when those things happen, does that mean that God's not with his people? Uh, Does that mean that God has abandoned his people or his promises? And the story of Esther tells us, no, God has not abandoned his people. Even when they're in situations that are sticky and morally ambiguous and we're just not sure exactly what to make of it, the story of Esther invites us to see that God can and does work through all of us. And the story of Esther invites us to see that God is working in the real life messes, the the day-to-day living that we live in, the moral ambiguity of humans throughout history. He is still able to work through those things. And the writer wants us to know that even in exile, the, the Jewish people have no Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem. They don't have their, 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 um, their temple. They don't have the, the props or the, the things that go along with their religion. They don't have any of that stuff. And yet, there's this unseen, unnamed, unnoticed, sometimes unobserved, and unheard from God at work behind 
the scenes. And this story includes moments of coincidence and sort of happenstance that are used to save God's people from destruction. And again, even though God is never mentioned, it seems that he's sort of orchestrating these events with these divine coincidences that it just doesn't seem like there's any other way to point to other than God. So I want to ask you, how about you? Right now, in your situation, does it sort of seem like maybe God is absent or God is distant or, or you're just sort of wondering, where is God? I haven't heard from God in a long time. I haven't, haven't seen God's work in my life. Do you feel abandoned and, and, and maybe left to your own moral ambiguity, maybe because of your own doing or maybe because somebody else you know, pushed you to do something you didn't want to? Whatever the case is, when God seems absent, his invisible hand is still at work. And could it be that the, the sort of the scenes of your life, the, the, the events of your life, the circumstances of your life, and, and maybe even the lives of those around you are sort of some divine coincidences, that things are being worked out behind the scenes, that it's not just um, unorchestrated. It may be apparent to you that it's unorchestrated, but maybe God is working behind the scenes. Because I think, like the story of Esther, God is inviting us to look for God's activity in our lives, not just in our lives, but in the world around us. And that is one of the great joys of being a pastor is to help invite people into what is God actually doing around us? What is God maybe leading you to do? What is God doing in people around you that maybe can help you and they can help move you forward? And how can you also help move other people forward as well?